Thanks for joining me today. This is Redemptive Revolution, restoring hope to the formerly incarcerated. I'm Nick Arnold. Today you'll get to step inside a jail and understand what life is really like behind bars. My guest is Rachel Esters, who spent the better part of her career in jail, not as a prisoner, but as an officer. She retired as a lieutenant with the Larimer Sheriff's Office and spent most of her time serving at the Larimer County Jail. She is now a consultant with a focus in diversity, leadership, cultural and gender issues in corrections, and management of high-risk inmates. A special area of expertise for her is the inclusion of transgender employees in the workplace. Rachel, it's great to have you on the program. Well, thanks a lot, Nick. I'm enjoying being here. Well, thank you so much. So I want to know, uh, since you spent so many years working in jail, can you give me a kind of an idea of what life is really like behind bars? Well, it's uh, jails are really small cities. So um, within a jail, um, people are there either for um, pre-trial, uh, awaiting to go to court, um, or awaiting the bond out. Uh, there are some people that are county sentenced, which means they might spend as much as two years uh, in the jail. Um, regular daily things that go on in jails are you know, meals and uh, medical services, mental health services, those types of things. It's, uh, it's for most people, it's a, a harsh environment because you lose um, quite a bit of your freedom and your ability to make your own decisions, and um, you're, you're living in uh, conditions that are just not, you know, normal. It's so much different than what you might experience in the community. Yeah. And so some of these people are not necessarily convicted of anything. They're just kind of waiting trial or, or waiting for uh, sentencing. Is that correct? That's correct. And I think that's a really important part is that there's sometimes a, a misconception that um, jail is just punishment. And um, there are people there that are simply there um, to ensure that they appear in court. Mm. So they haven't been convicted of a crime. They're not being punished, and uh, they're just waiting to go through the judicial process. And and just mentally, what is that like for them, knowing that they're not, you know, they haven't been convicted of anything? But I mean, being in jail is a pretty jarring experience for them, I would imagine. It is. I, I you know, there's a couple of different things that are going on. Um, you know, you don't have as much information as maybe you would like. Mm. Um, perhaps when you're initially arrested. Um, at some point, they told you what the charges were. Uh, most people are an attorneys; they don't really know what that means, or, or necessarily what the penalties are. Uh, you may or may not have seen a lawyer, so have the opportunity to really understand what your situation is. So there's a, a lot of questions on what's going on with you in the judicial system, and then um, there's the physical environment. So you're dealing with this uh, environment, this in some cases, dormitory-style living, in some cases, some cases more restricted living. Uh, so, and you're you're dealing with that, that, that physical freedom. And then if the other piece is that there's um, a lot about that jail is an emotional experience. Mm. And, um, you know, what's going on in my life? Uh, you know, how are people in, in my community going to view me? Uh, you know, is this... Uh, uh, a preview of the coming attractions. Am I going to, you know, remainder of my life incarcerated in some way or another? 
um, it's, it's, it's difficult. You know, so you have all these different things, these complex issues that are affecting you while you're incarcerated. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I can see how that would really affect how people might view you or employers might view you. Even if, uh, even if you aren't convicted of something, knowing that you had been in jail might uh, have an effect on that. Is that true? That's true. Well, that's permanent. And um, so once you've been arrested, um, you have a criminal history. And, uh, you know, for the rest of your life, um, when you're applying for a job, uh, and especially for a large industry or for government, and they're able to do a background check on you, you know, in jail. And, and whether you've been convicted or not, it comes with a, a stigma, you know, that you've done something wrong or you're in the wrong place or with the wrong types of people or wrong types of activities. So mm. it's something that can affect you. Um, later in life, if you are arrested on something that's fairly high profile, okay, and um, you may feel as the judgments been made in the community before you even got to court, and uh, that initial news story is what you're going to be dealing with, not that later on it was found that you um, were innocent and, and you released, and, and there were mitigating circumstances, those kinds of things, but it's that initial um, news story, that initial uh, information is that's what people are going to remember. So there are some people who have been convicted of a crime and are uh, in jail. Uh, they're being punished for something. Um, can you tell me what punishment generally looks like in jail, but also what you believe punishment should look like? Well, I, I, I think that the, many people feel that the conditions of the jail are punishment. So when um, Perhaps there's a news story and, and people are talking about the conditions are really harsh in a jail or, um, you know, violence or those types of things. And, and some people in the community might respond by saying, well, you know, they're in jail, they're being punished. That's, that's the way it is. Um, but that's not a punishment. The punishment is being incarcerated. The punishment is being, um, deprived of your contact with the community, your ability to go to work, your ability to prosper. You know, just being removed from society, that's the punishment. The incarceration it, it is not um, the idea that we people should be in a dark, dank, violent place while they're being incarcerated. Yeah, because if they're, you know, being away from their kids, being away from their spouse, their friends, and then, like you said, the work, I mean, that has a significant impact on your life. Right, and something that you may or may not be able to overcome in the future. Um, you know, the, again, you know, we talked about having a criminal record, and that's something that you're going to be dealing with when you get out of jail. Um, perhaps you had risen to a certain place in your profession, you're doing really well. Now you have to start all over again when you get out of jail, and that may be difficult. So there's a just just by virtue of being removed from society, taking that step out, that's, that's the punishment, not, not the conditions in the jail. And, and something to remember about conditions in jail, the conditions, you know, how we treat people, and I've said this before, how we treat people in jail really um, is about what kind of people we are, not the kind of people that are in jail. Um, so we have this responsibility to treat people in a humane manner. Most of the people that are in jail are going to return to the community again. So, 
know, damaging them psychologically or emotionally um, during their incarceration doesn't bode well not only for the individual but for the community that when they return. Do you have any kind of examples of of some of the reactions that people have after leaving jail and, and some of the effect that that's had on them as they enter back into the community? When people are, are, are leaving jail, um, their jail costs a lot of money. Okay. So when you go to jail, uh, you're, you're going to be charged for your phone calls. Mm. Uh, and uh, your meals are provided, your lodgings provided, but um, you're going to be charged for um, commissary or, or, you know, uh, commissary is a, a, a procedure in which you can buy food or buy snacks or those kinds of things. Okay. Um, you may be charged uh, bonding fees in getting out of jail. Mm. Um, in addition to whatever the bond is uh, to get out of jail, um, you may be charged for your medical um, services that you receive in jail. So there's a lot of economic things that are going on in jail. So we when you leave jail, and, and, and we have to remember that the things that I'm talking about are, from my experience, that they're not necessarily always represented by every jail in this country. We have over 3,000 jails in this country, and in 50 states with different laws. Uh, so the circumstances are going to change from place to place a little bit. But the jail is an economic experience as well. So you, you leave jail, and um, you've, you've taken a pretty big hit financially. and you know, and that includes losing a job or having your vehicle towed or, or those kinds of things as well. In jail, if I understand it correctly, there's um, different security kind of zones uh, that people can get placed in. Is that correct? There are. And when we talk about, and I think this is an important part, because, you know, you'll hear uh, in the news about a specific jail that the jail population is, is rising. It's, uh, a lot of people may need to build a new attics or a new jail and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're you know, given one number. And for a jail professional, the, the, the overall number of, of, of folks that are in jail is not a concern. It's the different subgroups. Mm. Because each group in jail um, requires different management and a different use of resources. So most people are in, in kind of a general population uh, situation in dorm living in a jail. Okay. And um, this is the least restrictive. And, and it requires the least amount of resources um, because um, basically the behavior is, is pretty normal. Um, people are, are getting along. And um, you can put people in large uh, areas without a lot of um, security mechanisms, um, doors that operate mechanically, okay. and um, you know uh, fixtures that are are uh, tested against um, um, you know to, to ensure that they won't be broken, and things like porcelain versus uh, a steel toilet. Okay, a steel toilet is going to cost more, but yeah, and I know you didn't call me that about toilets. No, but, it's uh, interesting. But, but those, those are potential things that are expensive. So now, that's the least restrictive environment in general population. Now, as we get down, we break it down to folks that are dealing with, uh, who are kind of in jail within jail uh, because of their charge.
charges or because of behavior in jail. Um, now we're talking about smaller housing areas that cost more mm. than the larger housing areas because there's more um, staff that's needed uh, to watch them. There's more violence. There's more disturbances. Uh, the, uh, the the architecture of the areas are more extreme, and, and it costs more money to build both kinds of areas. Definitely. And, and that's a area of expertise that you had in your career, correct? You spent a lot of time in those high security areas. I did. I, uh, as a lieutenant, I was, uh, responsible for the entire, well, entire operational part of the jail. But, uh, one of the areas that really took up a lot of my time was our high security area. And, uh, again, these are people that are dealing with, uh, their, you may pay, have uh, serious charges. Uh, they just might have problems in jail getting along with other people. They may have mental health issues. Mm. So these are, are people that are really having a difficulty dealing with the community of jail and have acted out um, either violently or uh, failed to follow rules um, or might even try to escape the facility, those kinds of things. Okay. So, so we find that this group of people move to one area, high security type of area. And again, it requires a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. You have, um, you know, all of these uh, mechanical doors and, and, and a lot of things like plexiglass and barriers that keep the inmates away from staff. So there's not this kind of, um, uh, there's not a uh, situation in which you can have really positive communication because you're talking to people on intercoms or through door slots and there's always some sort of barrier between um, the staff and, and the inmates. And people tend to act out of these areas. They uh, It's very restrictive. So they spend a lot of time um, in what you would call solitary confinement. You know, 23, maybe 23 out of 24 hours a day locked in a row. And um, with not much to do. And so the, the the effect on a person emotionally and psychologically is huge. Um, you have no control of your life. You have no distractions um, from anything other than your situation. And uh, this in this situation, people start to act out. And in fact, in our jail, uh, at a for a time period, when we were having a lot of problems with our high security area, the inmates and sometimes the staff would refer to the area as the whole. Hmm. And and I think that sends a message, you know. Yeah. Um, you're going to the whole. What, what does that mean? And, um, so we were we were having a lot of difficulties. We were having uh, disturbances. And inmates would throw urine uh, or or feces or for the few times that they were out. You know, they might. You know, try to break the mop bucket and, or attack staff or attack another inmate if they happen to share that space. Yeah. And, um, and it just kept getting worse. And, um, we, we had a lot of questions that kind of continue to do the same things over and over again. I, 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 I was reading an article about a jail that was using, uh, like a, an iPad type device. Okay a security device that was made for jails. And inmates would be able to watch movies or order commissary or uh, set up their visits and things like this. 
and uh, I looked at some of the comments, and, and some of the comments were uh, that were, were coddling in me. Mm-hmm. Where, where, why are we doing this? Why are we giving this? We're trying to give them everything. And I don't think people understand is that we have a responsibility not just to house these people, but to provide for community treatment and um, positive treatment while they're, while they're in these facilities. And our responsibility goes above and beyond um, just putting people in, in, in boxes and shutting doors. Right. Because uh, these are human beings. So we, we had, uh, and, and all enforcement, we, we tend to respond with force. You know, and if you don't do what I want you to do, then, you know, we're going to use more force because these are the rules and, and you need to follow the rules. And that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is, you probably could find a parallel in strict parenting. Stand in the corner. My gosh, you're going to do what I say, do, And that's just the way it is. And then we kind of lose sight of why the person's having problems. And, and we focus on, they're just not doing what I told them to do. Yeah. And, and that becomes the issue. And uh, we were probably guilty of that as well. I, I mean, I think that's the way the industry operates. And uh, as we, as the inmates were, were having difficulties in, in this area and, and uh, were starting to act out and flooding their cells and uh, having riots and things like that, we were, we would respond uh, with either force uh, to follow the riot or the disturbance or to um, or restrict privileges. So if you're going to act this way, we're going to take this away from you. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't have these books, or you can't have this, or you can't have that, until eventually they don't have anything. And, and people that are deprived of everything uh, have nothing to lose. And that puts uh, your staff in danger a lot too, doesn't it? It really does. So, you know, this, this, um, because the end of the inmates become assaulted or uh, they feel it's suicidal, you know, and, and staff is uh, uh, subjected to, you know, bodily fluids and things like that. And uh, it, it's a, it's dangerous both for the staff and dangerous for the inmates. And it's a bad business practice. It's expensive. And yeah. then the, the inmates now going to be charged with a new crime, you know, for this disturbance or this assault. And now you have to the judicial system is also um, has another burden because now we have another crime. So you, you you went into jail for something relatively minor. You're having difficulty in jail. You're put in a high security area, a very restrictive area. You act out. You get another charge. Not even be there longer. You see how this thing yeah. kind of snowballs. So you have a very innovative approach to dealing with some of these high security areas. I'd love to learn like what that approach is and how you develop that approach. Well, out of frustration. Okay. <laughs> because because uh, I was as guilty as anyone else of uh, really just practicing that industry standard, saying, "Well, we're just we're we're just going to become more restrictive." And and I, you know, one day I was asked, "Well, what are we going to do?" And I just thought, "Well, we're going to do the opposite of what we've been doing because guess what? What we've been doing isn't working." And uh, we're going to give ourselves permission to try something new, and um, and we did. And uh, I started uh, looking at 
communication. And, and remember, I talked about all the restrictive barriers. Yeah. And uh, and we just had to start having conversations. So we had a little piece of paper that we would write down in these behavior. And um, I, I literally a piece of paper. Okay. And um, that would go to a classification board, which would be several staff members who would look at the inmate's behavior and the criminal history and make a decision on whether or not to change their their segregation level and within the housing area and move around the housing area. And, and, and then the inmates ask, well, what's going on? And we literally have an answer for them. We say, well, we're writing this information down and, you know, we're going to pass it on. And it, it, was a, it was a really bureaucratic, bureaucratic kind of situation in our system. Yeah. And uh, but I said that's it. We're gonna have we're gonna have conversations. So uh, I told my deputies at the end of your shift, you're gonna go up to each inmate in the area, and you're gonna give them a report card, and you're gonna say you had a good day or a bad day, and, and what that looks like. And uh, the inmates knew that if they had a certain amount of bad days, if their status was gonna change. But also, they knew if they had a certain amount of good days, their status would change. It, it was very transparent. So it wasn't this guessing game. And there was another human being standing there having the conversation with them. Yeah. So we weren't writing, jotting something down on a piece of paper and secretly sending it off to this, this classification. Right, board. right. <laughs> We're actually talking to them. And then when it came time to make the decision about changing their levels, and the supervisors were involved. And the supervisors would have another conversation with the inmates and said, Hey, you know, this is what you already know, this is these are the conversations, and this is what I'm gonna do. And so we just uh, virtually eliminated this whole process of you know, just remotely sending this information to this group of people and having them make the decision. And we it was instead we were taking responsibility ourselves making the decision. Sounds like a more transparent process that, that the inmates actually kind of understand what's going on and, and can kind of know, well, this is why this situation isn't changing for me or, or why I, I am able to get out of this situation, out of this out of segregation. Right. Well, in jail, it's all about information. Hmm. So the, 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 the just process of being incarcerated is you have limited information. What's happening with me? Why are you doing this? Why are you taking my why are you sending Why are you sending me here? It's about limiting the amount of information, and so we kind of broke them all. And said, we're gonna we're gonna share information. Why aren't we sharing this information? Yeah. Why aren't we telling you this? Why aren't we having this conversation up front rather than waiting for you to do something that's really negative and then telling you why you didn't, you know, why you shouldn't have done that and why you're being punished? And we had a. Now, when inmates end up in this area, sometimes they will be written up for whatever infraction got them in the area. So they would get up in the area, and there would be a delay between the hearing or the infraction, because they, that may have uh, given them some lockdown time. Lockdown means time that you have to spend in your room with the door closed. Okay. And uh, so there would be a delay. They would already be locked down in this really restricted environment, and then um, maybe their status would have changed a little bit, but or their behavior was pretty good after that incident, and then now they're being hit with this um, violation, and 
uh, additional days locked down. So you can imagine emotionally what what this feels like. Yeah. I said, well, that's it. We're, we're just going to, uh, if their behavior is good, we're, we're going to allow that to be good time. You know, we're going to write that time off because at the end of the day, what is it we want? Do we do we want our pound of flesh or do we want the behavior? Yeah. You know, we we as an institution have to make that decision. You know, do you know? Do we want you to pay this debt that we've established, or do we want you to have good behavior? It should be. We want to have good behavior, positive behavior. And, and uh, at the end of the day, whether a person is going from a high security area back to general population, or from anywhere in a jail to the community, we want to give them the skills and the um, the support. To prepare themselves to return to a community, yeah, and and you can't do that by just living in a box. And one of the things, additional things that, that that I did is I allowed the more inmates to spend time out with each other. Okay, um, so that uh, because we had systems in place that, that you know only certain amount of inmates can be out uh, interacting with each other, but I said no, we we people need to be out with other people. Um, this is. I'm ready to forego some of the security concerns to have this positive behavior. And having the positive behavior, I may hope to have less security concerns, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. When we ran this program, in a year's time, we reduced uh, our cost by approximately 80% and, and wow. the same in, in disturbances. But, and, and when I talk about cost, I talk about... Uh, Cost of overtime, bringing extra deputies in to deal with situations, uh, the cost of workers' compensation where um, staff was injured, um, destruction of property, uh, inmate um, injuries where we would have to maybe transport an inmate to the hospital okay. after an incident, uh, uh, additional criminal charges, uh, the use of a special um, um, response team, which is expensive, the training of the team. Uh, the tools that are used by the team, so we're able to reduce this uh, this cost, both financial and, and physical cost, by approximately eighty percent in a year. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, and it's it's, uh, it, it's it's really simple. It's um, it, it seems really simple, uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, you know, as an industry, and and, there, and, and I'm not going to say that. Um, some institutions aren't moving in this direction because I, I do believe there are institutions that are moving in this direction. Uh, but as an industry, we're, we kind of drag our feet about trying new things. Yeah. And, and we're looking for more concrete solutions that are uh, involve uh, these, uh, these other tools, these more harsh tools. I have deputies who didn't want to work in, in the housing area because it was just overwhelming for them. And um, National Institute of Program, uh, after a year ago, I'd be approached by these two deputies. So, you know, I can work there now. Okay. It's, it's, so it's, you know, from two different ways of looking at this, um, from a business um, perspective, uh, using less money, uh, less fewer injuries, um, less liability, to just being a human being. Um, both of the staff and the inmates, more positive interactions, 
a more normalized environment. Yeah. Uh, those kinds of things. I, I think that we have also a responsibility to educate uh, our communities. And I, I know that when I started this program, I really had to educate my staff on why we were doing it. Right. Uh, not just what we were doing. But we, we started out just saying, this is what we're going to do. But to really make it work, you have to, you know, have people really understand the why, yeah. why we're doing it. Sure. And I think that we have the same responsibility to do with our communities because standing out from an outside of a jail, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, it should be harsh, you did something wrong, you know, that's, that's jail. But uh, so many people don't really understand jail and how it relates to the judicial system and uh, all those different complex pieces. So you're now retired from the sheriff's office and are a consultant. Um, so one of the uh, areas that you're consulting on uh, is some of the gender and cultural challenges in jails. Uh, so what are some of those challenges, and, and what are you doing as a consultant to help address those issues? In general, um, organizations are more flexible, more um, adaptable, more powerful, uh, more successful when they embrace the idea of diversity. Okay. Uh, when they embrace the idea of having people from different types of backgrounds uh, in, involved in their organization. And, and that's to include people uh, who are uh, from a DLET background uh, or, uh, um, you know, a different uh, you know, ethnic background. Or, I, I, I think that it's important for organizations to understand uh, how important it is to be inclusive. And to um, that this brings streaks to an organization, and having you know, I'm African American, so I, I worked in an organization for 20 years that was predominantly white, uh-huh. and um, and and was in a country that's predominantly white. So uh, I, I, I bring that perspective into it, uh, and and I'm a transgender person, so um, and, and I experienced my transition while working in law enforcement at a relatively high level. And um, with it, you know, doing that within the organization and, and with, you know, pluses and, and minuses. And um, so bringing those experiences, those are things that um, I, I I like to talk to organizations about on how they can be more accepting and why it's important to be accepting and, and what that looks like and, and what some of the, the, the negative you know, people experience are and, and what are the opportunities for these to do positive things as well? And, and to see that, uh, you know, as a transgender person, I, you know, I contributed. Mm-hmm. You know, I am, um, you know, my, uh, as a person, I still continue to contribute. You know, it doesn't uh, mean that I'm, I'm a person that is taking something away from society. Rather, I'm, uh, I am also participating. Well, Rachel, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you, and I very much appreciate being asked. That was Rachel Esters. If you're interested in learning more about her and her work as a consultant, check out rachelesters.com. I'd like to hear from you as well. You can connect with me on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Redemptive Revolution. There are also lots of great resources at our website, redemptiverevolution.com. Check it out, and if you're a brother or sister rebuilding your life after incarceration, we would love to hear your story. You might even get profiled on the show. Until next time, my name is Nick Arnold, and this is Redemptive Revolution.